Welcome to Current Radio's Science Station. Please enjoy today's selection of science news. Charlotte, I've been reading up on a fascinating development in the search for extraterrestrial life. Scientists are planning a mission to drill through the icy crusts of Europa and Enceladus, the moons of Jupiter and Saturn respectively, in search of life. They're calling these moons ocean worlds because they harbor vast oceans beneath their icy crusts. That's fascinating, Diego. I remember reading about these ocean worlds. They could potentially have more water than all of Earth's oceans combined. But how do they plan on accessing these underwater oceans? I mean, we're talking about drilling through kilometers of ice here. Yes, it's a daunting task, but researchers have a plan. They're developing a concept called a cryobot. This self-contained probe uses heat to melt the ice beneath it, allowing it to descend into the depths of these icy moons. It's a simple and effective concept that's been used to study terrestrial glaciers and ice sheets, but translating it to planetary icy crusts is a whole different ballgame. I can imagine. These icy crusts are colder, thicker, and more uncertain. But it's not just about drilling through the ice, right? What about the power system needed for such a mission? Good point, Charlotte. The heart of a cryobot is a nuclear power system that generates the sustained heat required to melt through kilometers of ice. They're considering various nuclear power systems, including radioisotope power systems, which have been used in many deep space missions, and fission reactors that may be developed in the coming years. But the power system design has to meet two key constraints. Let me guess, it needs to generate enough power to facilitate efficient melting, and it needs to be protected from the high pressures of the deep ocean? Exactly, Charlotte. And then there's the thermal management system, which is required to manage the heat produced by the onboard nuclear power system. This system needs to maintain safe internal temperatures and distribute heat to the environment for efficient performance. That sounds like quite the engineering challenge. But what about the impurities in the ice? I mean, we're talking about dust, salt, and other obstacles that could hinder the probe's progress. That's a valid concern, Charlotte. The researchers are considering auxiliary systems to penetrate through these impurities. A combination of water jetting and mechanical cutting has been demonstrated to be effective at clearing debris. And for larger obstacles, the cryobot might need a mapping sensor and steering mechanism. So it's not just about drilling down, but also navigating through the ice. And then there's the issue of communication. How do they plan on staying in touch with the cryobot? They're considering several methods. Fiber optic cables are one option, but they're also exploring wireless techniques, including radio frequency, acoustic, and magnetic transceivers. Of course, all of these options need to be tested and validated for deployment through ice shells. This is truly a monumental task, Diego, but if successful, the payoff could be immense. The possibility of detecting life on another world seems more possible than ever. Absolutely, Charlotte. It's a huge endeavor, but the consensus among workshop participants is that this mission concept remains feasible and scientifically compelling. It's an exciting time to be involved in the search for extraterrestrial life. From the depths of icy moons to the icy expanse of our own planet, Let's shift our focus to the terrestrial poles. In particular, we'll be discussing the National Science Foundation's recent challenges in improving the cost estimate for a significant project. This project, 
located in the remote and challenging environment of Antarctica, is crucial for advancing our scientific understanding. However, it seems they have hit a bit of an iceberg in their planning. Charlotte, let's talk about the National Science Foundation and its recent steps in improving the cost estimate for the Antarctic Research Infrastructure Project. Ah, yes, Diego. The NSF, as we know, funds and oversees the design, construction, and operations of science and engineering research infrastructure. But it seems like they've run into some issues with their cost estimates, particularly for the Antarctic project. That's correct. The pandemic has led to cost increases and schedule delays for NSF's major facilities projects. They've had to adjust the cost and schedule for five major projects, including the one in Antarctica. And what's concerning is that the revised cost estimate for the Antarctic project wasn't well documented, making it unreliable. That's a major issue for... Absolutely, Charlotte. And it's not just the Antarctic project. The NSF anticipates additional increases for two of its major facilities projects, the Vera C. Rubin Observatory and the Antarctic Infrastructure Modernization for Science. The Ames project, as it's known, has met three of the four characteristics of a reliable cost estimate and all the characteristics of a reliable schedule. But the cost estimate issue is a sticking point. It's only partially met the well-documented characteristic associated with reliable cost estimates. And that's a problem, because without good documentation, senior management and others providing oversight won't have confidence that the estimate is reliable. It's also crucial for preventing unnecessary trade-offs or loss of research capabilities in the future due to unexpected cost increases. And let's not forget the supply chain risks. Several projects have experienced unforeseen supply chain-related risks due to the pandemic and other external factors. For example, the Rubin Observatory reported supply chain issues stemming from the war in Ukraine. Right, and because of these unforeseen risks, NSF has decided to provide management reserve funds. But they also need to manage known supply chain risks, which means identifying specific supplier performance and component availability prior to construction. The GAO has recommended that NSF ensure the Ames project meets the well-documented characteristic of a reliable cost estimate. NSF has concurred with this recommendation and plans to develop a corrective action plan. It's going to be interesting to see how this unfolds, Diego. Indeed it will, Charlotte. These are complex projects with a lot at stake, not least of which is the ability to conduct research and advance U.S. scientific goals. It's crucial that they are managed effectively and efficiently. From the icy expanse of Antarctic research projects, we now turn our attention to an intriguing intersection of literature and science. This tale involves a beloved children's author, a newfound fossil, and a fascinating connection that spans centuries. Stay tuned as we delve into a story that beautifully intertwines the world of words with the wonders of nature. Charlotte, today we're going to talk about a unique discovery that connects the literary world with the scientific one. It's a story that involves Beatrix Potter, a celebrated writer, and a fossil fungus. That's right, Diego. Beatrix Potter, best known for her children's books like The Tale of Peter Rabbit, was also an avid mycologist. Her love for fungi has been immortalized in the form of a newly discovered fossil fungus named Potteromyces asteroxylicola. This isn't just any fungus, though. It's currently the oldest disease-causing fungus ever discovered, right? Yes, indeed. 
The lead author of the study, Dr. Christine strelu darian has long wanted to honor Potter in this way, recognizing her significant contributions to the field of mycology. Which, interestingly, were not recognized during her lifetime. Fungi, in general, are vital to our ecosystem. They play a large role in nutrient cycling, making survival possible for other organisms. Absolutely, Diego. From forming symbiotic relationships with plants to decomposing dead matter, fungi are indeed unsung heroes. But not all fungi are beneficial. Some, like the newly discovered Potteromyces, are known to cause diseases. And this study suggests that all these conditions have a historical precedent in Potteromyces. The researchers found it in samples taken from the Rhiney Chert, a layer of rocks from Scotland that's been crucial in understanding the evolution of plants and fungi. The Rhiney Chert is known for preserving fossils of early fungi, plants, and arthropods. The team used a confocal microscope to investigate slides from the chert, and they discovered what looked like a new fungus with unusual reproductive structures. But they needed to find another specimen to confirm it was indeed a new species. It took years before they found a second specimen, also in the Rhiney chert, and could officially describe it as a new species. What's fascinating about Potteromyces is not just the fungus itself, but its relationship with an ancient plant called Asteroxylon macchii. The fungus was found growing in this plant, killing its cells and absorbing their nutrients. And the plant had developed dome-shaped growths in response, which is unique in the Rhiney chert. This is the first evidence of a fungal parasite causing disease in a plant from this time period. This discovery has the potential to clear up some of the confusion around the origins of fungi. The fossil's record of fungi is notoriously difficult to study due to their delicate structures, but Pottermyces is providing valuable new evidence. And there's still much more to discover from the Rhiney chert. New technology is constantly revealing more information about this site, helping us understand the origins of the fungi we know today. It's a fascinating journey, isn't it? From the literary world to the scientific one, Beatrix Potter's legacy continues to inspire and enlighten us. Absolutely, Charlotte. It's a testament to the interconnectedness of all fields of knowledge, and it's a reminder of how much more there is to discover and understand about our natural world. From the intriguing world of ancient fungus and how it shaped our understanding of the natural world, we now shift our focus to a modern-day concern that might surprise you. It seems that not just our natural environment, but our living environment plays a significant role in our health. Our next topic explores a recent study that suggests a surprising link between renting a home and accelerated aging. Charlotte, we've got an interesting topic on our plate today. A recent study suggests that renting a home could age you faster than both smoking and obesity. Sounds quite surprising, doesn't it? It does, Diego. This study comes from the University of Adelaide and the University of Essex. They've found that living in a private rental property can accelerate the biological aging process by more than two weeks every year. That's quite a statement. So they're suggesting that the stress of renting, the uncertainty perhaps, could have a more significant impact on our health than known factors like obesity or smoking. It appears so, Diego. The research indicates that the effects of renting are even worse than being unemployed, which adds around 1.4 weeks to a person's biological age per year. Obesity adds about a week, while being a former smoker adds approximately 1.1 weeks. That's fascinating. And it's not just any renting. 
it's specifically private renting. According to Professor Emma Baker, social renters, or those in public housing, don't seem to experience the same accelerated aging. Right, Diego. It seems the security of social renting and homeownership contrasts sharply with the uncertainty faced by private renters. Professor Baker pointed out that the average rental lease in Australia is between 6 and 12 months. So even if your lease is extended, there's still that constant state of unknowingness, which can be quite stressful. And stress, as we know, has been linked to numerous health issues and can indeed accelerate the aging process. But Charlotte, is it fair to say that the study is essentially linking the stress of unstable housing to accelerated aging, rather than the act of renting itself? That's a good point, Diego. It does seem like the study is highlighting the impact of housing insecurity, but it's interesting to see how this issue is sparking debates. Some argue that it's a critique of capitalism, suggesting that the system encourages rent-seeking behavior, which could lead to inefficient allocation of resources. And that could potentially lead to wider socioeconomic issues, right? It's a complex issue, and it's clear that more research is needed to fully understand the implications. Absolutely, Diego. But for now, this study certainly gives us food for thought about the potential health impacts of our housing situations. It certainly does, Charlotte. It's a reminder that our environments, including our homes, play a crucial role in our overall health and well-being. 